Welcome to Catholic Radio Indy's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler. I'm Kent Blanford. Each week, we'll bring you a sampling of some of the best Catholic podcasts being prepared and shared out there on the internet. While it seems that the impossible has happened, as the United States Supreme Court has overturned the decision in Roe v. Wade that opened the doors to legalized abortion. Reaction has been fast and furious, even in the podcast world. The decision was released on Friday, and on Saturday, Kristen Hawkins responded with her thoughts on the explicitly pro-life podcast with an episode titled, Waking Up in a Post-Row America. Hey, Post Road Jen. Welcome to this special episode of the Explicitly Pro-Life Podcast. I'm Kristen Hawkins. I wanted to come to you today with just my raw thoughts about yesterday, what happened at the Supreme Court, where we go from here, what it means now in day one of Post Row America. So as soon as I woke up this morning, I um, went live on Instagram to share some of my thoughts. So my my voice is a little groggy. I have no makeup on, but I wanted to just make this into a podcast for you because I think it really encapsulates, you know, what's going on in my head with all the different things happening at one time. Also wanted to make sure you saw the New York times. I mean, the article is completely biased. I mean, it's the New York times, but look who's on the cover. I, um, it is extremely humbling, uh, to, uh, wake up and, uh, get a text message from a, from a friend, one of our staff members, to let me know that what we did yesterday made the cover uh, of the New York Times. I kind of want to send this to, like, my very uh, liberal college I went to that wasn't, like, super helpful in me finding my career path and being like, yeah, alumni is being doing this. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, okay. Well, listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy. Uh, make sure you subscribe, share it around uh, with all your pro-life friends and family, and get active, guys. It is day one of the post-Row era. Our team at Students for Life is hitting the doors uh, in Maryland, across the D.C. area today, warning neighbors about the predatory abortion facilities in this area and about all the nonviolent support services that are existing across our country. That's what we're doing day one. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to a post-Row era. You know, Saturday is, um, Saturday is usually abortion day in America. If you've ever been out sidewalk counseling or, um, praying in front of an abortion facility, you know that Saturday is is the day. That's the biggest day. I would say abortions are committed across the country. After uh, not sleeping uh, for about two days, I finally fell asleep around 1am this morning. And so I just got up about half an hour ago. And I woke up not groggy or, or grumpy that I still didn't really get full eight hours of sleep. I woke up with this feeling that today hundreds of lives will be saved immediately after the road decision came down yesterday states like uh kentucky i saw 
uh, Texas, Alabama, people just stopped committing abortions. Abortion facilities literally shut down. The state of Ohio issued a memo yesterday saying that their heartbeat law is going into effect. In Alabama, the attorney general released uh, a statement similar. In uh, Missouri, the same thing is happening where they're going to shut down all abortions in their country. What you and I did yesterday, what our movement did yesterday, oh, because of 49 and a half years of fighting, which by the way, interesting fact, yesterday was the birthday of Nellie Gray, the founder of the March for Life. She passed away in 2012, is a hero to many of us in the pro-life movement, part of that uh, OG pro-life gen we call them. It was also the sacred day, the feast day of the sacred heart of Jesus. If you're Catholic, it was kind of a big deal too. But, um, but what we did yesterday mattered. It wasn't just a notch on a political victory belt. It didn't, it wasn't just like, a, oh, we won, put a check in the win column for us. Because of, six and then five there was two decisions it's a little confusing justice roberts should be ashamed of himself but because of those really five supreme court justices and their courageousness because of the state of mississippi because the attorney general lynn finch uh of mississippi but to be honest with you the conservative establishment uh, Buck some even in the pro-life establishment and said, no, you know what? We're not going to go to the Supreme Court and just defend our law in Mississippi that bans painful abortions when, when children can feel pain at 15 weeks. No, we're going to go further than that. And we're going to argue that this entire thing was predicated on a made up right, a cancer that was said that was in our constitution which never was that, you know, this right to privacy was found in the shadow of a penumbra of our constitution it was actually written in the constitution. Yesterday I was watching as I was getting ready to go live on MSNBC, which wasn't as bad as I thought it would be by the way, because there was a lot of shouting in um, behind me. So I think it was hard for them to shout at me while I was just listening in. Uh, but while I was waiting to go live on MSNBC after the decision came down, I was watching Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's reaction. And it was fascinating to watch her complain about, you know, the Supreme Court's previous day's ruling on gun laws, something that's actually in our Constitution, like in the Second Amendment, the right to bear and keep arms. Uh, but then in the next breath, arguing that something that isn't in the Constitution at all, Abortion uh, should be guaranteed and should be taxpayer funded um, and should be allowed. But today, when I woke up today, I have, it's, it's a joyous Saturday. Not here in D.C. it's not. That, you know, this is a place where abortion is unregulated and they're committing abortions and since the ninth month. Our friends at POW, a Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising, have proven that uh, openly with the, with with showing the, the five babies that uh, a worker who was there to collect the remains of children uh, gave them, showing that these are late-term children. These are third trimester children being aborted here in this city. But in many states across America, 
babies are being saved today. It's not often in the pro-life movement. You know, we talk about this a lot in Students for Life. And when I'm, you know, trying to measure our progress at Students for Life and are we advancing the ball down the court? You know, when I'm trying to, 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 to propose to supporters and our board members that what we do matters, I have to be really careful. I can't ever really project you know, the number of lives that will be saved because we've started and sustained and our help mentoring a Students for Life group on campus. Many of you uh, know of, of, you know, babies that have been saved because you have conversations, you know, whether your Students for Life group went out in front of uh, a, an abortion facility and talked to a woman uh, about the violence of abortion and redirected her into a nonviolent pregnancy resource center, or whether you helped a student who was concerning abortion because your school was you know, adhering to Title IX uh, and actually guaranteeing her rights. You all have, you know, these antidotal stories when, when you get to interact with someone. But when I'm largely saying we need $20 million as a, you know, two legal organizations to um, sustain and support the public generation, it's very hard for me to say $20 million will result in uh, X number of lives saved. I can say I, you know, we'll have 10% minds changed on college campuses. We'll change 18 to 35% of those we talk to online. I can say we can start, you know, a hundred new students for life groups. We can train 20,000 new students. We've got 200 of the top uh, pro-life students in America actually right here in the same hotel with me in Washington, D.C. Some of our top pro-life legislators will be joining us tomorrow uh, for our, what we call our National Leaders Collective, which, by the way, the hotel, uh, you know how I woke up today. Uh, the hotel called me complaining about our students, who, by the way, we never have gotten any complaints ever in the history of Students for Life at hotels that we're at because literally um, our students students, our pro-life activists are the best human beings on this planet, but there's a social worker conference going on here in this hotel, which I don't know if you've ever interacted uh, with social workers, but apparently being a social worker wanting to help kids means you want to advocate for some kids to die. Uh, they are literally like the most liberal people uh, on this planet. And so these social workers, like they're crazy. Like they're coming up to our students, debating our students. I was walking in the hallway yesterday and a woman I think thought I was for the social worker conference because I didn't look like our students. I was in a t-shirt and started bitching at me about our students. Um, and so, yeah, they called me to tell me our students were knocking on doors in the hallway. And I said, no, I said, I think somebody probably overheard that our students are knocking on doors in the neighborhoods today because that's what they're doing. But I, I highly doubt that they're knocking on doors in hallways. I think your, your folks, your other guests uh, who are raging pro-abortion uh, women um, overheard our students of what they were about to do, which I think is freaking fantastic. Um, but anyway, when we're projecting, you know, why folks should give and what the result of, of giving the students for life is, I can never say, you know, how many babies are, are saved. I just can't do that. It's, it's an impossible number. But today, we know babies are being saved. We calculated earlier this week, I called uh, my good friend, Dr. Michael New. He's a professor at Catholic University of America, the kind of foremost researcher on 
effectiveness of abortion laws. He actually does the actual math that I never want to do. Uh, and I, we called Dr. New earlier this week because I had asked him, you know, we at Students Life had been out in front of the Supreme Court um, every decision day since the end of March because we see our, our, our role. We know what our role is to be the ground troops of the pro-life movement. To be honest with you, I was a little disappointed uh, even yesterday that there weren't other national pro-life groups out there with us. It was Students for Life. Um, and it just it was kind of sad to think last night. I was just laying in bed like, had we not been out there, had our supporters not, you know, paid for the, the thousands of dollars of security and not, had not, you know, paid for the flights of these 200 students that came for our National Leaders Collective this weekend, the pro-life movement would have been grossly underrepresented at the Supreme Court today. That was a scary thought, but thank goodness we're there. But anyway, um, I think it's unbelievable that, you know, hundreds of lives will be saved. Dr. New, uh, earlier this week when I, I called him complaining, I said, you know, every day we're out in front of the Supreme Court, you know, we're waiting for this decision to happen and it doesn't happen. And we know it's coming. We know it's coming, but they're just waiting. They're delaying it. And my frustration was, you know, we've had this leaked decision since May. How many babies have died since this leaked decision? I mean, think about it. There were babies who could have been saved. If that leaked decision, if the day after the leaked decision came out on May 2nd, if the leaked decision would have come out on May 3rd, they said, okay, well, cat's out of the bag. Here's where we are. There would be babies alive today. There have been babies who have been born who are alive today. But they waited. The word on the street was that they were likely waiting because the dissent uh, was refusing to release a dissent and they were trying, you know, they always have to release or try to release a dissent, you know, with, with a de decision. I don't know if that was true or not. They're trying to be super secret. I still want to know who the hell the leaker was, but you know, if it had been a, a conservative or Republican, you know, we all would have known who the leaker was, where they came from, where their parents' address was. Uh, we would all know that. But I called Dr. Noon. I said, how many babies? So we know, and media is largely reporting, that in about 26 states, we'll see abortion made largely unavailable very soon because of you know previous trigger laws, because of laws like Students for Life Actions, Life at Conception law that was just you know signed into law in Oklahoma two months ago that as of August 1st uh, makes committing abortion a criminal penalty. Oh, hell yeah. Um, because of our, you know, because of these laws, we have about 26 states. And there's some special sessions that some states should call into. Like, by the way, did you know that Indiana doesn't have a trigger law? Yeah. So we've already started a program in Indiana telling the governor, telling the state legislature to get their butts back to Indianapolis and ban abortion in their state. So if you live in Indianapolis, you better do that. Um, there's about seven other states where we're trying to get special sessions called, where the governor can call in a special session and the state can say, okay, now because of Roe versus Wade, we can actually do, do sorry, my phone's getting ready to die, so it was telling me that. Um, because of Roe versus Wade, uh, 
the states can say, okay, now we're going to do something we've promised to do. So you, you really got to, I mean, you're going to hear from me a lot in the coming weeks and months. Um, but, uh, the, the gist of it is, is all of these state legislators who for decades have been saying, oh yeah, I'm pro-life. I really can't do much because, you know, Roe versus Wade. Now they can do something and they're going to be held accountable. And a lot of them are probably going to be scared because they saw the Antifa protests. Um, this is, you know, you know, they've seen the Jane's revenge threats. Last night was a night of rage. I still haven't heard whether or not our office has been vandalized. Thankfully, we're, you know, a little bit more of a, uh, of a obscure location by design. Um, so that might help. You would not believe, though, the threatening voicemails that started coming into our office uh, immediately after the decision by all men, by the way. I, I'm going to do a video with those uh, voicemails. I asked for them to be saved because some of them are freaking hilarious. Um but anyway, going back to my original point, uh, this, see, this is why I haven't come live because my mind is racing in so many different directions of things we need to do. Cause I've only been preparing for this moment for 16 years since we launched Students for Life of America. And so now it's finally here. Um, but yeah, Dr. New, I was, you know, telling him about these 26 states and he knew the states. I said, can we figure out the number? How many lives will be saved? 880. So we know there's about 3,200 abortions that are committed every single day in America. With these 26 states that move instantly uh, or very quickly uh, to ban or restrict abortion, to protect women from the predatory abortion facility, we can save 880 babies every single day. And that's not even going into additional states and, you know, seeing work being done, especially in this year's midterm elections, which, by the way, if you haven't signed up to be a Students for Life Action volunteer, now is the time to do this because we're going to be door knocking in Kansas. They have a ballot referendum. We've already had staff on the ground there in Kansas. It's going to be the first state to have abortion on the ballot since Rose Falling on August 2nd. We need your butt in Kansas. So go to Students for Life Action's website. I think it's studentsforlifeaction.org slash volunteer and sign up to volunteer. But anyway, 880 babies. I woke up today to the complaints of the hotel because of the liberal social worker guests who hate our students, who are amazing, the most amazing students you'll ever meet in your life, with the thought that 880 babies are going to be saved today and every day. Yeah, we did something yesterday. We did something historic. We did something that's never been done in the history of our nation. You and I did that. And you and I are going to continue to do that. It's not something that's going to stop. You know, I remember in the 2020 election, I remember in the 2016 election, there's like liberal pro-lifers, which we love liberal pro-lifers. I'm always trying to find actual pro-lifers who are liberal-leaning, progressive Democrat, because I think folks like that can speak in a way that I can't speak, right? I walk into a room and apparently like there's like a sign on my forehead. This woman is a conservative. Um, I don't even wear pearls anymore. Apparently my pearls used to give away, but I don't even wear pearls anymore. Anyway, I'm always looking for truly pro-life liberals and progressives because I think that's when we know we'll really win, right? Is when we have Republicans and Democrats fighting our vote because I'm a realist when it comes to politics and what politicians do and do not want to do. 
But I remember in the 2016 election and the 2020 election, there were certain liberal Facebook and Instagram groups. I don't really call them organizations with with um, substantial funding who literally, you know, I remember in 2021 Instagrammer, I think she's banned me on uh She's banned me this account and my personal account, my Hawkins History Hunters account, which is just pictures of my kids. Uh, and uh, she, um, she, she like posted stuff like "f Trump" and it doesn't matter, and you can you you don't sell your soul and vote for this evil, terrible person um, because it doesn't matter. We always get disappointed by the Supreme Court, and they're not going to do anything anyway. I wonder how that person's feeling today because regardless of whether or not you voted for him, regardless of not whether you loved or hated Trump and you know, don't get me started. There's lots of things I can say about that. Donald Trump, his election, the work that we did, you know, pressuring the U S Senate to stand up on life, pressuring U S Senate candidates and elected officials to stand up for life. The work that we did to pressure, you know, this kind of novice to politics who we all know wasn't really pro-life when he started running or before he was running to become a pro-life president, a single single handedly, the most pro-life president, most pro-life presidential administration, I think large part to Vice President Mike Pence. And, you know, I love him. He is my hero um, because of him. Because of actually our board co-chairman, Students Five a band named Leonard Lee, or somebody you've never met before, but because of Leonard, his relationships with judges across the United States. Leonard went into Trump Tower, met with President Trump, gave him a list, started talking to him about what candidates were on the list, what judges would actually like see what's in the Constitution and was it what wasn't in the Constitution. Because of them, we have a pro-life Supreme Court. Because of our work, because even our door knocking, I remember door knocking in 2020 with some uh, liberal pro-life activists who were like, I don't even like President Trump, but I'm telling people to vote for him because we have to, because we have to save lives. I don't even like President Trump, but I'm telling you to vote for them. I love those people because they were, they were always true believers, always true believers in what we were doing and with the mission, the strategic mission that we were accomplishing because of those true believers, not because of the people that were on Instagram and said F Trump and didn't do a damn thing who now still call themselves pro-life. By the way, if you call yourselves pro-life, you better vote pro-life first. You better be a single issue pro-life voter or don't get, dare give yourself that title. I'll get a little upset about that. But because of what we've done, because of, all of you, even if you didn't like President Trump or, you know, didn't like his Twitter account, or whatever, but you said, I'm going to vote because I'm going to vote strategically. I'm going to vote for the pre-born. We did something that's never been done before yesterday. It's on the front page of the New York Times. The New York Times uh, is noted what we've done. And because of that, 880 babies will be saved today, tomorrow, the next day. So yeah, I woke up in a really good mood today because this is a Saturday where lives will be saved. Thanks guys for joining. Sorry, I haven't been coming live to you before. Um, it was a little hectic as you can imagine yesterday. I'll try to keep 
uh, updated. Um, if Students for Life's websites are still under attack, they've been sustaining a huge DOS attack since, as you can imagine, yesterday. So if you can get onto our website, make sure you sign up for uh, our email list at studentsforlife.org. There are going to be a lot of marching orders in the coming days, a lot of volunteer opportunities to sign up. For example, the Kansas deployment, since you know Kansas will be the first state where abortion will be on the ballot, uh, signing up for the 2022 midterms, uh, to go door knocking with us across the states. Uh, we are already door knocking in cities across America. You know, when everyone says, oh, what do pro-lifers actually do to support women? Yeah, I literally have knocked on 120 thousand doors because of you i can say we've knocked on 120,000 doors in the past year in 20 cities through our campaign for abortion free cities educating neighbors and uh, neighborhoods surrounding abortion facilities about the nonviolent alternatives that exist promoting spending hundreds of thousands of your dollars that you've donated to students for life uh, promoting standingwithyou.org which is a website that we've we maintain at students for life which has public and private nonviolent resources that any woman across America can join um, it can have it start an instant chat or call and get instant help and get connected to nonviolent resources near her yeah that's what we do by the way um, so we have a lot of work to do we've got to continue to do this um, I should I should go but Two biggest things we have to really do, offense and defense battle. Beyond the elections, which we all know, you know yesterday, Pre President Biden is trying to get everyone to forget about the fact that it cost me $10 to get a 12-pack of Coke, and it cost me $6 to fill up my gas tank. So you know he's trying to launch his campaign uh, off the backs of the broken bodies and uh, of, of aborted children. Um, but he, you know, so beyond the election and what we're going to have to do for the election to ensure that the Senate does not get a majority so they cannot pack the Supreme Court because they cannot pass a law to codify Roe versus Wade and make abortion legal in all nine months and make us pay for it. Beyond that, what can we do? Offensively, we have to tell people about the nonviolent resources out there that from one of the 50 years, we've been starting, supporting, sustaining more than 3,400 pregnancy centers and maternity homes across the nation that vastly outnumber uh, the, the fewer than 600 abortion facilities in our country. And just all you have to do is promote standingwithyou.org. The website has everything on it. Get our bumper sticker, talk about, put on your social media, follow the Instagram account, follow the Facebook account, standingwithyou.org. One, offense about. Two, we have to defeat chemical abortion. President uh, Biden even talked about this yesterday, about how they want to get dangerous chemical abortions over the counter. You know that whole mantra of abortions between a woman or a doctor? Yeah, they, that's not that's not them. They want abortions to be over the counter. Women, um, we know 50% of all abortions are being committed through chemical abortions. These are dangerous pills that result in injury, infertility, and death. Um, and injury to women. We always know they result in death to babies, but injury, infertility, and death to women. Um, and they want to use them to get over the counter. This is why Planned Parenthood, by the way, has been pushing to become, they are now the nation's second largest, um, uh, servicer or pr provider of transgender hormone drugs. Why? Because they've been trying to escalate their cash cow because they know the ideologues in the abortion industry want chemical abortions over the counter, which actually means the Planned Parenthood is going to lose money on this deal, which is why they've stepped into this whole other thing too. I mean, it, it goes into their whole vision at Planned Parenthood because Margaret Sanger, the racist, started Planned Parenthood not to kill babies. She actually was against abortion, but she 
was a racist and wanted to sterilize people, certain stocks or breeds of people from having babies. So actually it makes sense why Planned Parenthood's involved in these transgender hormones, because these transgender hormones actually do sterilize you for life. And there's no reneging on that. Um, so that's why Planned Parenthood stepped into this because the abortion industry wants to get these drugs over the counter. Um, and so we're going to have to fight back hard to educate Americans, to educate women about the dangers of these drugs. Um, so that's, that is, I would say your defensive battle, your defensive marching orders. And just in general, don't be afraid to be your pro, don't be afraid of pro-life. Yes. Is there Antifa rioting in some states? Yep. Did they try to block the streets in LA? Yep. Uh, has Antifa set fire to things in Portland? Yep. Seattle, same deal. Yeah. These guys look for excuse to, to, to riot, to burn it down, to call for anarchy all the time. I mean, we had U.S. Congresswomen calling for anarchy in front of the Supreme Court yesterday. I mean, I should be surprised because they're Democrats, but yes, that's happening. Um, but yeah, it's going to get harder to say you're pro-life and they're going to try to shut you up. They're going to try to intimidate you. Like I said, you would not believe the threats that we've gotten. I had to have a security guard on me the entire day yesterday and now I'm locked in a hotel because whatever. Um, but we can't give up. We can't give up. I would encourage you to look the history that happened after 1965. I mean, 1865. The end of the Civil War. It's a wonderful thing happened, right? Millions of people were freed. President Lincoln was shot five days after the end of the Civil War. Reconstruction effort began. It ultimately failed, and it took 99 years from the end of the Civil War until the signing of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. 99 years of Supreme Court-sanctioned segregation, of violence, of terrorism, of whole states where if you had dark skin, you didn't want to be out after dark in fear of the night rise and the KKK. I can't wait 99 years, but I can tell you it's going to be hard to part nation back together. And we have a 50 state plan to do it. Um, and, and yes, there'll be, there'll be violence from the other side because those who advocate for violence against babies behind the closed doors of Planned Parenthood have no qualms, as we've now seen about committing it in the streets. This is actually the result of our culture of death where we've dehumanized the most precious and most vulnerable among us. When we do that, it's very easy to say another person staring at you in the street isn't a person deserving of rights and treatment too. So it's going to, going to be hard, but we can't, we can't start another 99 years of reconstruction. We've got to get back to work immediately today. Yes, 880 babies will be saved today, but we've got a lot of work to do to reconstruct our country and you can't be afraid to do it. So I, uh, I hope this helps, gives you marching orders for today. My phone is now going to officially die. So I have to sign off. Um, if you haven't subscribed to, um, my podcast, at uh, explicitly pro-life wherever you get your podcasts um i'll probably come out with some sort of i don't know i don't really have much on my agenda today i have to do a cnn interview at some point write a speech but i might i might just do a podcast here in a little bit uh get out some marching orders immediately forever everyone um of what we need to do so um have a great saturday up to 880 babies will be saved today bye guys
You're listening to Catholic Radio Indy's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler. We'll be back with more right after this. So, the scan button brought you here. Awesome. We like company. Get to know us. And if you have to leave, come back. You're always welcome. Catholic Radio Indy. For a long time, we've been telling you that if you have an Echo Dot or other smart speaker device, you can hear Catholic Radio Indy simply by saying, Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Just the other day, I did that, and Alexa was feeling a bit argumentative. I'll let you hear my conversation with her. Uh, Alexa, where are you? Here I am. What do you want? Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Now, just why would you want me to do that? Well, because we've got great programming 24 hours a day. Well, a lot of other radio stations have good programs, too. Yeah, but our programming talks about God and eternal salvation. I am very smart. I know almost everything about everything, but I do not know about God and salvation. Well, that's why people need Catholic Radio Indy. So, Alexa, do me a favor. Whenever anyone says, Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy, just send them our way, would you? Yes, I will be happy to do that. In the meantime, I am going to do some research about that thing you called salvation. I wonder where I can find out more about that. Welcome back to the Lunchtime Podcast Sampler on Catholic Radio Indy. Our next offering on the sampler comes from wordonfire.org. It's an introduction to a series, The Art of Happiness, with Dr. Arthur Brooks. This episode is titled, Three Equations for Happier Catholics. Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the Senior Publishing Director at Word on Fire. We have a brand new course inside of our Word on Fire Institute. It recently went live and it's titled The Art of Happiness. It's taught by Arthur Brooks, one of our fellows. Blending social science and Catholicism, this course combines cutting-edge research and top-notch scholarship with the lives of great saints and our incredible inheritance of church teaching. There are even surprising places to discover where secular science reinforces sacred wisdom. Plus, you'll receive clear takeaways and action items that you can put into practice right now in order to build more happiness for yourself and to help you share more joy and peace with your family, your friends, and everyone else God puts before you. Today, we're going to hear lesson one from this course, which is titled Three Equations for Happier Catholics. And in this first talk, Dr. Brooks lays out the drivers of happiness according to Catholicism and findings from secular social science, three things that influence our level of happiness. I won't spoil them here. You have to listen to the talk to find out. But I did want to mention that right now we are running a special deal where you can access all of the Word on Fire Institute for free during Lent. That's right. From now through Sunday, April 17th, which is Easter, you can join the Word on Fire Institute for free. So you will not only be able to listen to the rest of this course from Arthur Brooks, but over 25 other courses by amazing teachers. You'll also get access to all of Bishop Barron's films and study programs. You'll receive a wonderful welcome box with the Evangelization and Culture Journal, a book by Bishop Barron, and much more. So go to the website, wordonfire.institute, look for the free Lenten trial button, and sign up today. But for now, here's Arthur Brooks in lesson one of his new course on the art of happiness. Enjoy.
I'm Arthur Brooks, Professor of Public Leadership at Harvard University. I'm here to talk to you about the secrets to joyful Catholicism. In this first lecture, we're going to cover some of the basic science of human happiness. I'm going to do this with three equations, three big-picture mental models that you can use to conduct a happiness checkup and identify spots where you might benefit from making some changes. But first, you might be asking yourself, why should faithful Catholics care about the secular science of happiness? Isn't our interior life between us and God? Shouldn't a priest or a mystic be teaching this course for word on fire instead of a social scientist like me? Well, there's no question our capacity for true joy and happiness begins with faith. In his letter to the Galatians, St. Paul lists joy and peace as two of the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit. St. Augustine famously writes in his confessions that you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So let's be clear. No secular science will ever be able to originate the joy and the happiness that can only stem from closeness with the Lord. The wellspring isn't us. The wellspring isn't the world. As the Catechism makes clear, God alone satisfies. But here's something else that's fundamental. Catholics don't just wait around for God to send us bolts from the blue. We don't drift aimlessly, waiting for the right subjective feelings to strike. A Catholic's job is to actively cooperate in our sanctification, to actively put ourselves in the position to receive grace, to constantly carve ourselves into better channels through which God's love can flow to others. St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we have to run in such a way that we may win. We need to be intentional and disciplined about our journey toward heaven. Self-improvement, rightly understood, is literally a Catholic duty. No important part of our faith should be left up to chance or surrendered to subjective feelings. Not attending Mass, not prayer, and not our ability to find Christian happiness and share it with others. Baptism gives all of us a share in Christ's priesthood. Confirmation strengthens our witness. Lumen Gentium, a central document of Vatican II, explains beautifully that the laity are called to, quote, work for the sanctification of the world from within as a leaven, to make Christ known to others, especially by the testimony of a life resplendent in faith, hope, and charity, unquote. Catholics who proactively work on our own happiness will make for better leaven. We'll help refresh those who cross our paths. We'll be more loving friends, family members, and co-workers. And we'll help evangelize a troubled world by making the truth an attractive and a joyful thing. Now, this doesn't mean that we're called to be cheerful robots or Stepford Catholics. It doesn't mean running away from suffering. I'll have a lot more on that subject in a later talk, but... We should embrace what church teaching and modern social science can jointly tell us about improving our daily happiness. If you're still a little nervous about using science in this way, remember that St. John Paul II wrote an entire beautiful encyclical on the intersection between faith and reason. He wrote, quote, Faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to contemplation of truth, unquote. And the catechism says, the humble and persevering investigator of the secrets of nature is being led, as it were, by the hand of God, despite himself. 
So let's all commit ourselves to being those humble and persevering investigators. Let's ask God to help us tour the cosmic convergence between faith and science and, and learn how we can build better, happier lives. It might seem like a funny concept to mount a scientific study of happiness. Sure, there are endless books, videos, and podcasts on these topics. The self-help genre has always done a good business. But how can you tell the serious from the snake oil? The good news is that the formal academic study of happiness has absolutely exploded over the last several decades. There are Nobel Prize winners publishing on this topic. There are prestigious graduate programs. There's a peer-reviewed journal called the Journal of Happiness Studies. I teach a whole course on this subject at Harvard. You might say science is just catching up with the church. More than 700 years ago, St. Thomas Aquinas was contemplating remedies for unhappiness. Fun fact, in his masterpiece, the Summa Theologia, the first part of the second part, question 38, article 5, is literally about how a warm bath can cheer you up. Don't worry, I've got a little more material for you than just that. Today, I want to share a top-line summary of what I've learned in my years of research. Here are three equations for well-being. Three ways of assessing your life that will help you start managing your own happiness more proactively. Equation number one. Your subjective well-being equals your genes plus your circumstances plus your habits. Subjective well-being is a scholarly term. Most social scientists think the overarching concept of happiness is just too vague and multifaceted. The more precise term, subjective well-being, is, is measured by, by, by scientific surveys that ask questions like this. Taken all together, how would you say things are going in your life? Would you say that you are very happy or pretty happy or not too happy? The best scholarly literature suggests that people's answers to this question are mostly a combination of three factors. Our genetics, our current circumstances, and our personal habits. Now, like a good American, I hate the idea that anything is genetic, including my happiness. I want to be in charge. But extensive research shows that genetics play a big role in determining your, your set point for subjective well-being. The baseline you go back to in a normal spell without unusually or good or bad events going on in your life. There's a canonical article in the journal Psychological Science where the researchers surveyed sets of twins including some who had been separated as infants and raised apart. They asked these adults later about their subjective well-being. And what they found suggested that between 44% and 52% of each of our subjective well-being is genetic. Half of our happiness is genetic. The other two components are current circumstances and habits. Now, interestingly, researchers don't really agree on how much of our current life circumstances affect our happiness. Some studies suggest that they account for as little as 10% of people's well-being. Others say as much as 40%. <clears throat> but there is broad agreement that, however large the effect, the duration of that effect doesn't last very long. We think, in the moment, that a big promotion or a bad breakup will make us permanently happier or unhappier. But it just doesn't. Humans are homeostatic creatures. That means we tend toward a stable equilibrium. This isn't just true physically, but psychologically as well. We adapt to circumstances very quickly. 
This leads to a phenomenon that psychologists call the hedonic treadmill. It's, it's, it's what it sounds like. It's like being on a treadmill of feeling. When our circumstances change for the better, our brain quickly prices in that improvement and creates a new baseline. It's like that great old saying, a luxury once sampled becomes a necessity. Most happiness gains from most circumstantial changes wear off quickly. When it comes to worldly happiness, just imagine your brain asking, so what have you done for me lately? This adaptation has pros and cons. The bad news is that even if you work to get a big raise at work, your brain will turn it into your new baseline really quickly. The good news is even major life disruptions cause less of a permanent drop in happiness than you might expect. Humans are resilient. So far, we've looked at genetics, which have a lasting impact, but that we can't control. And circumstances, which we can sometimes control, but whose impact is fleeting. The good news is that the third variable, your habits, are in your control and do make an enduring impact on happiness. So let's break that component down further. And that leads us to equation number two. Your habits equals your family, plus your friends, plus your work, plus your faith. Now, this is my summary of thousands of academic studies. It sounds simple, but I'm convinced that this is the right way to summarize the happiness portfolio that we can control. Enduring happiness comes from human relationships, productive work, and, and most importantly, engaging with the transcendental. First, family and friends, relationships with other people. One extraordinary 75-year study run by my colleagues at Harvard University has followed people for 80 years from young adulthood all the way to death. All aspects of their health and well-being were examined. The principal investigator for many years, the psychiatrist George Valiant, summarized the findings in this way. Happiness is love, full stop. People who build loving relationships with family and friends, they thrive. People who don't, don't. It's so obvious, I don't need to dwell on it. Then there's work. We'll have an entire section coming up on professional work. So let's just pause here and suffice it to say, our Lord and Saint Joseph were not victims or suckers when they spent hours together in Joseph's workshop. Saint Benedict was onto something with his concept for monastic life, ora et labora, pray and work. And then of course, there's faith. When I speak to secular audiences, I have to spend several minutes urging them to explore the supernatural. Ironically, with you, I don't have to. You know our Catholic faith plays a pivotal role in your happiness. Maybe you've accidentally wound up putting God in the backseat at times in your life while you focused on worldly pursuits. I bet it didn't go well. I know it never does for me. St. Thomas Aquinas says the only perfect happiness that human beings can ever know is when we're united with God in heaven. And the closest approximation that we can achieve here on earth as contemplating him as best we can. So that's equation two. Faith, family, friendship, and work. Your happiness portfolio with four accounts. Ask yourself, are you over-indexing on one at the expense of another? Maybe finding lots of meaning at the office but neglecting your kids? Well, as your happiness advisor, I'm here to tell you you're due for a rebalancing of your happiness portfolio. 
Are you underinvesting in the entire portfolio? Instead, chasing after transient circumstances like money or pleasure that will never satisfy? That's even more dangerous. And that brings us to equation number three, the satisfaction equation. Satisfaction equals what you have divided by what you want. This one might not seem too groundbreaking. We all know that dissatisfaction means having less than we want. But, but here's the catch. The secular world wants badly for us to focus only on increasing the numerator, what we have. If we want more satisfaction, we need more stuff. But we should spend a lot more energy looking at decreasing the denominator, our wants. Instead of working to pile up more stuff, work to shrink your appetite. In short, focusing less on controlling your haves and more on managing your wants. Don't count your possessions or your money or your prestige or your romantic partners or your fame and, and try to figure out how to increase them. Take inventory of your internal desires and get to work decreasing those. Forget about a, a bucket list of exotic vacations and expensive stuff. Make a reverse bucket list. Catalog the attachments in your life that you need to discard. Identify 10 ways you can shrink the denominator in your satisfaction equation. Make a plan. The great Spanish saint Jose Maria Escrivá is famous for his pithy, punchy advice. Here's a classic. Quote, don't forget it. He has most who needs least. Don't create needs for yourself. This first talk has been your initiation into the social science of human happiness. To review, we have three equations on the table. Number one, your subjective well-being equals your genes plus your life circumstances plus your habits. Equation number two, your habits equals your faith plus your family plus your friends plus your work. And equation number three, your satisfaction equals your haves divided by your wants. Now, a lot of this might seem like common sense, but naming these things and spelling them out is crucial. Take some time thinking about these equations. Make a concrete plan about how you can use these equations to make yourself a happier Catholic. Well, we hope you enjoyed that first lesson from Arthur Brooks's new course titled The Art of Happiness, which can only be found inside of our Word on Fire Institute. If you'd like to access the rest of the lessons in this course, then I encourage you to join the Institute. You can access the entire Word on Fire Institute for free. You can sign up for a free trial and watch not only Dr. Brooks' course, but all the other amazing courses inside the Institute. Just visit the website wordonfire.institute. Well, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show. Our final offering on today's sampler looks at the fundamental reason Catholics affirm the right to life. What does it mean to be created in the image and likeness of God? That's the topic of this week's Three Minute Theology with Joan Watson. It's easy to get used to our sinful ways sometimes when we're thinking about what it means to be human. What do we say when we mess up? I'm only human. But sin isn't part of our human nature. Sin isn't what it means to be human.
Sometimes we rush into talking about original sin and the fall of man when we look at the creation account, but we need to understand the way Adam and Eve were created before the fall if we're really going to understand the fall. The creation account in Genesis 2 says something interesting. It says that God created man out of the dust of the earth. Some translations even say the slime of the earth. We are material beings. We have matter. We have bodies. But that same verse says something profound, that God breathed life into the man. We have a spiritual soul. We have a soul that's immortal, that will live forever. And we are the only creatures on this earth that are both physical and spiritual. In Genesis 1.26, we see the Trinity saying, let us make man in our own image. Male and female are created in the image and likeness of God. What does this mean? This means that we have immortal souls, we have a spiritual soul, but it also means that we have intellects and wills. We have the intellect that can know the truth, and we have wills that can choose the good. We are the only visible creatures on this earth that can know and love our Creator. And we are destined to know, love, and serve God and join Him forever in heaven someday. That's our destiny. That's what we're striving for. C.S. Lewis famous, famously said that if there's a desire in my life that the world cannot fill, cannot quench, the probable explanation is that I was created for another world. So what does all this mean? This means that as human beings, we have dignity. We have human dignity. We are created in love for love. Everyone on this earth has human dignity, regardless of our race, of our sex, of our age, whether we're elderly or unborn, whether we're mentally handicapped, physically handicapped, the prisoner, the refugee, your greatest enemy out there has human dignity. Do we act like that? Do we act like we have human dignity? Do we treat our neighbor with that human dignity? that's a gift from God. We didn't earn it, but we deserve to be treated with the dignity that God created us in His image and likeness. And this is a little theology in three minutes. As we close this week's sampler, let us pray that as we move into a post-world world, we may be mindful that despite many differences of opinion, we are all indeed made in the image and likeness of God. That's all the time we have for this week's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler. This episode, along with links to more of the podcasts we've shared, is available at catholicradioindy.org. I'm Kent Blanford. Have a great week, and may God bless. You can hear the Holy Mass every day at 8 a.m. right here on Catholic Radio Indy. Did you miss something in this show or just want to hear it again? Podcasts of this and all our other great local programs are available 24-7 at catholicradioindy.org.